0: But it's good to see everybody. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, we have been in this Christmas series for the last few weeks called Child of Promise. And in this series, what we're doing is we're looking at the prophetic words of Isaiah in the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, where he is describing for us, 700 years before the first Christmas, what the Messiah is going to be like and look like when he comes up on the scene and I want us to look together at the scripture Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 this is what the Bible says it says for to us a child is born to us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father and the prince of peace And in this verse, and really all of Isaiah 9, it's prophetic messaging, it's prophetic imagery. We've worked through all of those verses throughout this series. But here in verse 6, Isaiah is telling us what this Messiah is going to be called, what he's going to be known as, what his titles will be. And what these titles are is they're more than just a name to call him. They're actually a promise that we who are receiving him Uh, can can expect from him. And that's what this series is all about. Jesus is a child of promise. And so because he's a child of promise, when we receive him, we become the recipients of the promise that he brings into our lives. And week one, we talked about that promise of wonderful counselor. And I gave you three reasons the counsel we receive from Jesus is so wonderful. And then in week two, last week, we talked about how he is our mighty God. And we looked at the the language in the Hebrew and what that wording mighty God actually means in its context. And I gave you three ways that Jesus has proven himself to be a mighty God on behalf of his people. And let me just say again, if you've missed weeks one or week two in this message, I want to encourage you to go online and uh, and listen to those messages. You can listen to the audio on our podcast, or you can listen uh, and watch the video on our YouTube channel. I want you to do that. There's been just an incredible anointing um, here over the last two weeks as we've really dove into this series. And uh, God has really spoken. He's shown us some things that I don't want you to miss. It. So if you've missed the first two weeks, make sure you go online and check those out. And I want to mention that in our Christmas Eve service, we're going to, we're going to talk about that fourth title that Isaiah gives us. The one that's probably the most popular It's the title of Prince of Peace. But today, as we continue our series, I want us to talk about that third title that Isaiah assigns the coming Messiah. It's the title of Everlasting Father. Everlasting Father. Let's pray and ask God to speak to our hearts today through his word. Father, we give you praise and honor and glory, Lord, for who you are, and God, for what you've done in our lives. We thank you, Lord, because you're already in this room. Your presence is here, and we give you glory for that. Now, Father, I pray that you would speak to us through your word. I pray that it would come alive in our hearts, God. I pray that our minds would be in tune and alert. Lord, we pray that distractions would be at a minimum today so that we can lock in and hear your word and receive it in our hearts. Father, I pray that you would help us today to become more like Jesus. And we thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray, and everybody say amen. 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 Well, this title of Everlasting Father is without a doubt the most controversial title out of the four that Isaiah gives us in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And what makes this title for Jesus so controversial is twofold. First, it's the everlasting part, because everlasting implies an eternal existence. And we know that Jesus had a beginning. We know that he had a start date on the earth. That's what we celebrate at Christmas— We celebrate his birth in Bethlehem with the shepherds and the manger and the wise men and the whole deal. And that's what Isaiah is pointing to in this verse. He's pointing to what is coming, a first Christmas, a definite beginning, a birth of something new, the birth of a Savior. And so because we know when his beginning was, how can we call him everlasting? Or as a lot of people interpret the Hebrew there, eternal. How can we call him eternal? When we know that Jesus had a definite start date on the earth, just like you and me, there was a day that he was born and his birth marked a beginning. So that makes this title a bit problematic. And then secondly, it's problematic because of the term father here in verse 6. This term father is being used to describe Jesus, the coming Messiah. And see, we know from Scripture that Jesus is the Son of God. But if He is the Son, then how can He also be described as the Father? And to infer that Jesus is both God the Son and God the Father at the same time is actually heresy. That's unbiblical. It was one of the first heretical teachings that the early church had to deal with, and they refuted it emphatically. Jesus is the son the father is the father and the holy spirit is the holy spirit and these three persons these three personalities they make god who he is in his fullness and so while they work together as one god they are not one and the same they are distinct persons and they form what we call the trinity that's who god is And yet, in just this one verse of Scripture, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it's controversial because the prophet is looking ahead and he's foretelling that there's a coming Messiah. And based on what he sees in just this one verse, he calls him both Son and Father. So what are we to make of that? How can that be? Well, to be honest, understanding any of these titles that Isaiah gives us here in Isaiah chapter 9, and how they fully apply to Jesus, it requires a lot of digging and thoughtfulness. You can't just quickly read through this without thinking about it. And what I've tried to do over the last two weeks of this series is I've tried to dig deep into the text and pull out the richness of what's there, not in an effort to impress you, but in an effort to reveal Jesus to you so that you can see him in the fullness of who he is. Because these titles represent who he is for you on your behalf. And this week is no different. If we're going to fully understand what Isaiah is trying to show us here, and we're going to understand fully what Jesus' coming means for us as the recipients of his promises, then what we've got to do is we've got to slow down with this text, and we've got got to ask the Holy Spirit to show us what Isaiah saw and wrote down on our behalf. And when we really slow down and we read it, I think we see some interesting things right here at the beginning of verse 6 that I want to point out to you. So look at it with me again. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. Look at it. Isaiah begins the verse right here. He says, for unto us a child is born. And then he adds this. He says, unto us a son is given. And the truth is when we look at that phrase together at first glance, it kind of seems unnecessarily redundant especially if you were to kind of look deep into the language, the original language there, the Hebrew, what you'd find is that the word for child in verse 6 is explicitly a male child. In fact, there are many places in the Old Testament where that word for child is used, and it's not translated child, it's translated lad or boy or youngin if you're in the south. No, it's, it's translated son in many places there. And so it's redundant to say a male child is going to be born, but then come back and say a son is going to be given. It really is unnecessary in the language. So then you wonder, well, why then did Isaiah do it? Because we know that nothing in the scripture is unnecessary or simply redundant. Everything has purpose. So why did Isaiah do it? And the answer to that question, I'm just going to be honest with you, is going to require us to take a deep dive into theology today. Are you guys ready to do that with me? All right, let's do this. Some people get really excited about it. (laughs) But in adding the words, a son, in the second line of this announcement, it brings a focus. It brings an attention. Anytime you see that in the scripture where, where something is being repeated, they are drawing attention to this thing. They're saying, focus here on what I'm saying. And when you look at that and you give it the proper attention that it needs, it actually changes the way I think we look at this prophecy and view it. Because he says, to us a child is born, and then he adds, to us a son is given. And I would submit to you that there are two important distinctions that we have to see here before we move on. And when we see them, they make understanding the fact that Jesus is everlasting Father so much clearer for us. And the first distinction is this. There is a distinction between the words child and and son. They are not exactly the same thing. And secondly, there is a, a distinction between the words born and given. Again, it sounds redundant, but they're not the same thing. Now, watch this, don't miss it. Born speaks to his humanity, given speaks to his divinity, and they are not the same thing. Secondly, child speaks to who he will become at that first Christmas, but son speaks to who he already is eternally existing for us you see it you following me and I believe when Isaiah saw this prophetically in Isaiah chapter 9 I believe he saw an event that was coming in the future he saw a birth but I believe he also saw something that already existed an everlasting existence when he wrote these words where he stood in his present put him at a crossroads of a prophetic history that had already been and a prophetic future that was still yet to come A child who will be born in the future, but a son who is already existing from the beginning. The child is going to be born. The son is going to be given. One speaks to humanity. One speaks to divinity. And watch this. Jesus was both of those things fully. He wasn't half man and half God. He was fully God and fully man. He was fully child and fully son. He was fully born and he was fully given. And actually, the Gospel of John in the New Testament helps us to understand this phenomenon a little bit more. And it's interesting, in the Gospel of John, you've got what we call these uh, synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic, meaning they're the same in that they tell the story the same way. Mark actually leaves the Christmas story off. He just starts right with the ministry of Jesus. But Matthew and Luke both give you a narrative of what happened at that first Christmas. John, on the other hand, he writes his Gospel completely different. And while Matthew and Luke begin their gospel in Bethlehem with the birth, John actually begins his account long before the birth in Bethlehem. Look at it in John chapter 1 verse 1. We just sang about it. John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. Now, we know if you were to read all of the gospel of John chapter 1, you would find that the word that he is referring to is Jesus. He makes that clear throughout the first chapter of his gospel. And I told you as we were looking at Isaiah 9 and 6 that the fact that he would be born represents humanity, but the fact that he is given represents his divinity. Now, watch this. This is John's Christmas message. While the others are focused on, unto us a child is born, the beginning of his humanity, John's focus is on what happened long before that first Christmas, what was happening before Isaiah even penned the words of his prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. John takes us all the way back to the beginning of time, and he focuses in on the divinity of the Son, and he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How far back was that? He says it was in the beginning, meaning that the Word, or Jesus, was involved in the making of everything that has been made. He was involved in creation. And if you go back to the book of Genesis and you read the creation account, you read that God spoke the word and the word caused everything to come into existence and that's what John is highlighting here. He's saying that the son who is eternally given was involved in the making of everything. His light is the light of all mankind. But then John jumps to this in verse 14 and John 1:14. Then he comes back and he says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. You have to understand the word has not always been flesh but at one point in time at Christmas, the word then became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John starts his gospel with divinity, a son that existed from the very beginning. And then he jumps forward to his humanity, a child that has been born on the earth. It was the same word in the beginning that became flesh and now made his dwelling among us. So that first Christmas, a child was born, yes. But you need to also understand that before there was a child born, there was a son already given. And on that first Christmas, the son that was given is the person of Jesus Christ. Why was he given to us at Christmas time? It was to accomplish the plan of salvation, which the scripture tells us is from the foundations of the earth, from the very beginning of time. Child and son in Isaiah 9 and 6 are both referring to Jesus, but born and given are not the same thing. Now, watch this. I want to show you something else that's interesting. Isaiah, in his announcement to us about the birth of the Messiah, He says, unto us, in Isaiah 9 and 6, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And by using the word us, he's including himself in that announcement. He's saying that Jesus is going to be born, Jesus is going to be given to all of humanity. The son is coming to save humanity from the curse of sin. So he says, unto us. Now you contrast Isaiah's birth announcement with the birth announcement of the angels in Luke chapter 2. And I want to just remind you of that story. You remember the Bible says that there were shepherds out in the flocks tending their sheep by night, and suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And this is what the angel said to them in Luke chapter 2 verse 10. Don't miss this. He says, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah the Lord. Now watch this. Isaiah's birth announcement was to us. The angel's birth announcement was to you. Why was it different? It's because the son who has already existed for eternity was not suddenly given to the angels at Christmas. They already had him. They are, they, they've existed with him for eternity. He was suddenly given to humanity at Christmas. Why was he suddenly given to us? Because we needed the plan of salvation. He was given to us and not the angels because the angels don't need a savior, but we do. And that's why Isaiah said, unto us a son is given. But the angel said, unto you a child is born. And Isaiah wrote everlasting to describe him. Because there was a history here as well as a future that was coming. The son who already existed with the angels in eternity was suddenly given to humanity, born of a woman on the earth as a child, so that he could enact the plan of salvation to save all that was lost because of sin and redeem creation back to God himself. And so this is why Isaiah calls him everlasting. He was not just coming to establish a kingdom that would never end, he was already a king before that. We get more insight into this in the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Look at this. Speaking of the prophets, including Isaiah, this is what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1 and 10. He says, concerning this salvation, that's what Jesus our Messiah did for us through the cross. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, and he's including Isaiah there, all the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care. Now watch this in verse 11. They were trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing. When He predicted the sufferings of the Messiah... And the glories that would follow. Now I think this is so amazing. This is wild. I've Honestly, I've never seen this in the scripture before. But according to Peter, the reason Isaiah could look ahead and see these titles that he prophetically spoke about in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. The reason he could look ahead in Isaiah chapter 53 and see that he was going to be a man stricken with grief. A man that people would hide their faces from. A man that would bear our sorrows and our pain, and our sin. The reason he could see that the way that he did is because the Spirit of Christ, the Son who is eternally existing, this is what Peter told us, was already within him pointing his pen to tell us these things so that we would know them and we would see them when they actually happened. And that's what Peter tells us in verse 12. He says that these things were revealed to them, not for themselves, but to us who have been, Heard the, who who have heard the gospel have been preached the gospel, so that when we see these things by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would know the reality of who Jesus is. And I want to be real clear about this: Jesus is the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundations of the earth. He did not He did not become the sacrificial lamb after he was born. He already was. He was the Son who was given. God knew there was going to be a problem called sin, and he knew the only way to deal with our sin problem was to give us his own son, Emmanuel, God in the flesh, to become one of us, to take on our sin nature and suffer in our place so that through his death, we could actually be set free from the law of sin and death. The child was born but the son was given, given to us so that we could live and not die. Jesus spoke about this in his own words in John chapter 3 verse 16. Look at it and see if you can see Isaiah 9 and 6 in there. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave, he gave who? His one and only son. To us a son is given. He loved us so he gave his son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Isn't that awesome? That's why Isaiah called him everlasting. It's because he's going to establish a kingdom on the earth that will never end. But he also called him everlasting or eternal because there's a whole eternity that the son has lived before he ever came to the earth and did what he's done for us. And you need to know that God is way ahead of you. God is always working for you. You look at at, at the timeline of things according to your own understanding, but God does not look at the timeline of your life the way that you look at it. He sees the end from the beginning. And there are things that you're going through and you're dealing with that don't make sense to you. Trust me, God has a plan in what you're dealing with. God had a plan for the son, and at the perfect time, the child was born. And the son was given. He's everlasting. He's forever faithful. But then Isaiah adds to this title of everlasting the name father. So that he will be called everlasting father. And again, this title, as we've already pointed out, it presents another issue for us. Because if Jesus is the son, eternally existing as the son, then why is Isaiah calling him father here? There's a couple of things that I want to point out, and, and I, I took so much stuff out of this message because I, didn't, I just didn't want to bog you down. We're getting somewhere. We're going to go somewhere really fun here in just a minute. But um, there's so much here. There's so, many, there's so many reasons when you really dive into the text for why Isaiah looked ahead and said, I'm going to call him Father because that's what I see. The first thing that I want you to know is that all legitimate Bible scholars agree that Isaiah is in no way, shape, or form referring to the Trinity here. When he calls Jesus a father. He's not conferring upon Jesus, God's son, the role of God the father as well. Because just as the son has existed from the beginning, so has the father. And nothing can threaten their coexistence together. They are eternally existing together in unity, not in opposition or competition with each other. And that fact cannot change. God himself said this in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. He says, I am the Lord your God, and I do not change. What he's talking about is his nature. It cannot change. It will not change. So we know Isaiah's reference to Jesus as father is not threatening the existence of the father in the Godhead. So what is Isaiah doing here? Well, in short, we know that all four of these titles in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, they are descriptions of the nature of Christ towards us who have received him. So this is what Isaiah is doing. He's describing the nature of the ministry of Jesus towards us. And by calling him Father, what he's doing is he is saying that Jesus, the nature of his ministry is going to be fatherly towards us. It's going to be Father. Like. And so, for the remainder of our time together today, I want to show you three ways that Jesus fulfills this promise in his life and in his ministry towards us so that he is called Everlasting Father. Three ways the ministry of Jesus is like a father to us. And here's the first one In Jesus, we have a love that is enduring. In Jesus, we have a love that is enduring. And that is an attribute of a good father. And let me just say this at the beginning. I know that not all of us have had a good father. And I I fully understand that a message like this could be triggering on some level. And I just want to encourage you that as we're going through this, don't let your mind take you to all the times when your father failed you or your father was not there for you or your father was not good towards you. Because this is what the Bible tells us. It tells us that God He actually sees the plight of the orphans, and it is his delight to invite us into his family. And so God becomes a father to the fatherless. He becomes a husband to the widow. He is whatever you may need him to be in your life. And as we're digging into the ministry of Jesus... As a father, I want you to let your mind and your heart receive everything that Jesus has done for you on your behalf today. Let's honor him in that. But in Jesus, we have a love that is enduring. And this is what it says in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3. God says to us in his word, he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Meaning there is no limit to the love of God. Think about that. There will never be a day when God decides to withhold his love from you. There will never be a time in your life when God decides, you know what? You don't deserve my love anymore. I'm going to pull it away. Or, or a day when, you, you know, you've arrived. You, you, you don't need me anymore. You are good on your own. You don't need God's love anymore. There's never a day when you're going to experience that because God's love to you is an enduring love. It's an everlasting love, and he is not a man that he should lie Or that he should change his mind. The scripture says he has decided to love you with an everlasting love. And nothing you could ever do or say or become can change his love for you. That's how the father feels about you. He is an everlasting father to us, Jesus is. Because he has a love that is everlasting and nothing can threaten that. God loves us all with an everlasting love. But now watch this. According to the scripture, the only way that you and I could ever fully understand The gravity and the depth of God's everlasting love for us is by knowing his son, Jesus Christ. He came to reveal the love of the Father to humanity. And if it were not for Jesus, we would never know how loved we are by God. And if you don't believe me, just read the Old Testament. They were a people who were God's children, but they had no idea how loved they were by him. Even though he told them repeatedly through the prophets. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, this is what the Bible says. It says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We would never have the power to comprehend God's love for us if it were not for Jesus and his cross. We know the love of a father only because we've come to know Jesus, his son. But in Christ, we're not only exposed to this love that is enduring, According to the scripture, we have an opportunity to become enthralled in it or enmeshed by it, overwhelmed by his love. You know, it's interesting. I I tell my kids that I love them often. And, um, you know, pretty much it's it's an every night ritual before they go to bed. You know, they're going to hear from uh, Carmen and I, you know, I love you. We love you. Every morning when I drop them off to school, I'm sure to tell them. I love you, you know, and I love to hear them say it back to me, right? Dads, come on, you know, that just melts your heart, right? Your kids, like, I love you. love you, Daddy. It's an amazing thing. But it's one thing for me to say to my kids that I love them, and it's another thing for me to show them that I love them. And I can show them that I love them by spending quality time with them, by words of affirmation, by physical touch, All these things according to, you know, I try to I try to express love to them according to their love language, right? We try to do that as parents, like what what makes them feel like they're loved, and 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 it's a there's a different thing between just telling them and letting them feel it. And I want you to understand something today. There is a difference between just hearing the words God loves you, and then experiencing his love for yourself. And through Jesus Christ. God has made a way for every single person who has received him as Lord and Savior to experience this thing called everlasting love from God. In fact, that was Paul's prayer for the church in, Eph- in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 17. This is what he wrote. He said, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people. Watch this, to grasp How wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And watch this. And to know this love, that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That word to know in verse 19 in the Greek, it means to know in an experiential way. So what Paul's saying is, I don't want it to just be head knowledge for you. I want it to become heart knowledge. Paul's prayer is that you would know that you are loved by a loving Father, not just because you've been told that you're loved by God, but because you have experienced his great love in your life. And when you experience the love of God, it differently than just being told by somebody you know God really loves you and Paul said I want you to experience his love in a way that surpasses knowledge why Because when you know the incredible measure of God's love for you, it changes everything in your life. When you really know that you are loved by God, it changes the direction of your life. It changes the way you view your past. It changes the way you see your future. It changes everything. And Paul tells us in verse 19, when you really know this love and you go beyond knowledge with it and you begin to experience it, he says, then you can be filled to the measure of all the fullness of Christ. This is what Paul's saying. It creates the fullness in your life. Fullness. Listen, that means that nothing in you feels like it's missing. Nothing in you feels like it's lacking. Nothing in your heart feels like it is broken. Because I am full of the love of a father, it changes everything for my life. Listen to me. Jesus came. He was born. He was given to us so that we could know that kind of love and live in that love every day of our lives. This is what Jesus said in John 59. He said, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now watch this. Then he said, now remain in my love. Don't just hear me say I love you. Live in that love. Stay in that love. The Bible says in Him we live and move and have our being. Jesus made a choice to make the Father's love known to you and me. He has chosen not to withhold it from you. He gives it freely. But you've got to make a choice today to freely receive that love and stay in that love. Remain in that love. Live in that love. And when you do, it changes everything. So let me ask you today. Have you ever felt like your life was broken beyond repair? Maybe, maybe you've lived your life, and every day you felt like something is wrong with me. Something is missing. Something is lacking. Like you just feel like I'm not enough. Maybe, maybe the way that you would describe it is, you know what, I just don't feel loved. I feel unlovable. And the truth is, that describes the reality of the way a lot of people live their lives every single day. And let me just tell you, if that's how you feel today, let me please, let me introduce you to the love of a good father that is found in relationship with Jesus Christ. It is through the power of his love, the Bible says, that it covers a multitude of sin. It's through the power of his love that he heals broken hearts and he restores what the enemy has destroyed in your life. He redeems your life from the pit, it says in Psalms 103. The thing that left you feeling like you were dead inside. God says, I didn't leave you in that state. That's what sin did for you. And this is what I'm going to do through my son Jesus Christ. I'm going to reach down into that pit and I'm going to pull you out of it. And I'm going to redeem your life. I'm going to give you value you again. I'm going to give you a new birth. I'm going to give you a new start, a new beginning because of my love. The power of his love, when you invite it into your life, it changes everything. It changes everything. And all you have to do to live in that love, listen, is say yes to Jesus Christ. And when I say yes to Jesus Christ, we talk about that a lot in church. We talk about saying yes to Jesus. I'm not talking about making him some kind of consideration in your life. I'm talking about making Him your Lord and Savior, making Him first in your life, giving your all to Him, inviting Him in to be first in your life. When you do that, you become overwhelmed with the love of a good, good Father, and He changes everything about the direction of your life. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, the Bible says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that's what we are. His love is enduring. Jesus shows us that enduring love. And because Jesus shows us the enduring love of the Father, He becomes our everlasting Father. He fulfills that promise to us. Jesus is our everlasting Father because of the nature of His ministry. It's fatherlike to us. In Him, we have a love that's enduring. Here's the second one. Like a Father, in Jesus, we have a life that's worth imitating. In Him, we have a love that's enduring. And also in him, we have a life that's worth, worth imitating. My father-in-law, who may be watching this right now, what's up, man? He loves to tell stories, and anybody who knows him knows this. I've heard all of his stories multiple times, but I pretend I've never heard them because I want to be respectful. Carmen, not so much. She's like, oh, my gosh, Dad, I've heard this a hundred times. She just walks out of the room. You know what I mean? I'll sit and listen because I'm like, oh, no, tell me. I don't remember this one. Right. One of the stories that he loves to tell is a story about Carmen's brother, Cameron, when he was about four years old. And they grew up in Fresno, California. They didn't get a lot of snow, you know, in Fresno. It was snow every five years or so, but they would get hail. And there was one summer day when it started to hail and four year old Cameron decided he wanted to go play in the hail. And so he is trying to get through the front door. And Roger's like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? What are you doing? And he's like, I'm going to go play in it. And he's like, do you know what it is? And Cameron's like, nope, but I'm going to go play in it. And he's like, well, that, that's not a good idea, son. Here's why. And he tells him, you know, why he doesn't need to go play in this. And, and the, the solution that Cameron has is I'm going to go get my football helmet. And that will, that will help me, you know. And, and, and Roger just stops him and he says he says to him, son, this is one of the reasons that God gave you a daddy. To keep you from doing stupid things. You're not going to go play in the hell. And listen to me, God loves each and every one of us too much to let us live our lives fatherless. Because if he didn't give us a daddy, we would do stupid things. We would make a mess out of our lives. We would make bad decision after bad decision. And so what did the father do? He said, I need them to know my heart for them. So I'm going to send them my son. And he's going to express my nature to them in the way that he lives his life. So God gives us his son Not just to be our our propitiation for sin. There's a good King James word for you. Not not just to be the the sacrifice. I couldn't find the word and I, I just went back to my childhood there. Not just to be the sacrifice for our sin, but to show us the way to live our lives. His life is a life worth imitating. The life of Jesus is. And if you read about it in the Gospels, you think about all the times that Jesus says in the Gospels, follow me, follow me, or come to me. Why is he saying that? What is he doing? He's, he's saying that and he's doing that because he's literally inviting people to come and follow after him. Because when they, when they came to him, when they followed him, they found a life worth imitating. Jesus said it in John chapter 6 verse 45. He says, it is written in the prophets that they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him, watch this, they come to me. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus said it again. He said, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Listen, this is what Jesus is saying. It's an invitation. You want to live a life that's free from burden? You want to live a life that's free from weariness? Then come to me and follow my example. And this, I love the way the message translation finishes this verse up. Because the message, it says, I'm going to show you how to live in the rhythms of God's grace and that's what it means to live in his rest. In Matthew chapter 19 verse 14, Jesus said, "Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. What is Jesus saying? He's saying if you will come to me like a little child would go to his daddy you will find that I will show you how to live and the life that I show you how to live will be a good life for you. It will be a kingdom centered life. It will change the way you live your life. In John chapter 7 verse 37 the Bible says that Jesus lifted his voice and he cried out loudly. He said let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. If you want to get past the selfish, uh, self-centered, completely revolving around you life, then come to Jesus and he will show you how to live a life where something inside of you is pouring out of you so that your life is impacting everybody around you and you're not, you're not just somebody who is consuming all the time everything that life has to offer you, but you're someone who is giving the rivers of living water that Jesus pours into you. They're now pouring out of you through the power of the Holy Spirit. That is a life worth living. And it's a life that this culture needs to hear the church proclaim again. We are not on this earth to consume. It's not all about us. We are here to make an impact and make a difference in the lives of others. We get that from following Jesus. He said, come to me. You want to live that kind of life? You got to come to me. So like a good father, Jesus shows us the way to live our lives, and it's counter to culture. You will not get that by following anyone else. But when you follow his lead and you live like him, it causes supernatural favor to be released into your life. And as dads, I think we all know this from experience. If we mess up or we do something wrong, the last thing we want is for our children to follow in our footsteps. As dads, we want our children to be better than we were. We want them to rise above our failures and shortcomings, not be tripped up by the same things we were. But on the other hand, if we live the right way, and this applies to all the parents, if we live the right way and we do the right things for the right reasons, then nothing brings us greater joy than to see our kids following in our footsteps, because the path that we've laid for them is a good path, and it's going to lead them to righteousness. And Jesus is the perfect example. He committed no sin He lived his whole life and he never made one mistake. He lived a perfect sinless life and through his word he invites all of his children to see the life that he lived and then follow him, follow in his footsteps. And nothing brings him greater joy than to see his kids taking after their dad. Look at what Jesus said in John chapter 13 verse 15. He said, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Not blessed simply if you know them, but blessed if you do them. Blessed if you walk them out. As everlasting father, Jesus shows his children the way to live. But the choice on whether or not to follow in his footsteps is totally up to us. And you need to know today that for those of us who have received Christ Jesus as our Lord and Savior, following in his example is more than just a suggestion. It's actually a calling. This is what it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now watch this. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. What is God saying to us there through his word? He's saying like a loving father or even a big brother, Jesus went before us, paving the way so that we could imitate his life, so that we could walk in his steps. It's a life worth living. And as children of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, We can conform our life to his so that we are transformed into the image of Christ so that we begin to live a life that brings praise and glory to our heavenly father just like Jesus is. And this is what God wants you to know. There is blessing on the other side of that decision, but it's going to require you to make a decision to say, I'm going to live my life like Jesus. I'm not going to go my own way. I'm going to go in the way of the everlasting father. Just like a loving father, Jesus he gives us a love that is enduring. He gives us a life worth imitating. And here's the third and final one for today. In, in, in Jesus, in his ministry towards us, we have a grace that is empowering. We have a love that's enduring, a life worth imitating, and a grace that is empowering. When I was a kid, many, many years ago, if I did something wrong, there were many times when I was afraid for my mom and dad to find out. And I was afraid for them to find out because I was afraid of what their response would be. I was afraid of their anger or afraid of their discipline, afraid of their punishment. And so my response to that fear of them finding out was to try and cover it up, you know, to lie or, or hide or conceal it. And what I didn't know then that I know now is that, first of all, parents always find out. They always find out when you're lying. It, it's, it's just a it, it is a, it is a parent anointing that you just walk into when you start having kids. I know every single time, I know when they're lying. I just know. I'll be like, hey, did you brush your teeth? Yes. No, you didn't. Go <laughs> there and do it. I don't know how I know, but I know it. I'm always right. You know what I'm saying? They, they, they always know. And I didn't know that as a kid. The other thing that I didn't know as a kid, is that all of those attempts to cover up my mistakes and shortcomings, all of those lies that I told to try and hide what I did or what happened, all of that, what it did was it produced shame in me. And it taught me how to live a life of shame. And this is what I want you to understand. Shame is driven by fear. And there are a lot of people who live their lives afraid of God. And here's why. Religion is the reason why. Religion teaches us to be afraid of God. It teaches us to be afraid of his response when we mess up, when we fail to hit the mark. The result of our fear is shame. And listen, shame is debilitating. Shame is limiting. Shame is controlling. I guarantee you, if there's anything keeping you, from living the life that God has called you to live in Christ Jesus, if there's anything keeping you from doing the big things that he has dreamed for your life, it is not because of a lack of his belief in you. It is because of a lack of belief in yourself, because you've let shame take the place of that father-son, father-daughter relationship that God longs to have with you. Shame teaches us to talk ourselves out of what God has in store for us because shame teaches us to be afraid. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, the Bible says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love, it casts out fear. Now, you might be thinking, well, pastor, we've already covered love. You've already talked about that, right? But you need to know that while religion teaches you to be afraid, relationship with God through Jesus Christ teaches you how to love. Love is the entryway and the sustaining force into our relationship with God. And by receiving and continuing in his love, listen, we begin to experience something so much more powerful than fear and shame. We actually begin to experience this wonderful word called grace. John said in John chapter 1 verse 16, from the fullness of his love, we have all received grace on top of grace already given. When we fall in love with God through relationship with Jesus Christ, his grace begins to work in us and his grace changes everything. Grace is empowering. Grace is propelling. His grace is amazing because his grace sets us free to really live. And this is what it says in John 1 17. This is Jesus. It says, for the law was given through Moses. What's he talking about the law? He's talking about religion. He's talking about the lists of do's and don'ts, the lists of right and wrong. Religion teaches us to be afraid. It teaches us that we can't measure up. And watch this. It gives us no recourse, no action to take when we fail. It just leaves us stuck in this place of failure and shame. But now watch this. He goes on. He says, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus did not come to enforce a religion. He came to initiate a relationship, and they are not the same thing. But when you look at the Scripture in verse 18, look at it. It goes on. It says, no one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father and has made him known. What is John trying to tell us there? He's trying to tell us that Jesus came to make the will of the Father known to us. And God is not looking for a religious commitment from you. What he's looking for is a relationship. He did not send his son to enforce the law. He sent his son to initiate a relationship with God the Father. John is trying to tell us that what we learn from Jesus is how to live in the grace of God. And his grace empowers us to live a different life. It empowers us to live for him. This is what it says in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Listen, if you've been trying to throw off things that hinder you, if you've been trying to throw off sin that so easily entangles through the power of religion, you need to know today that that is never going to work. If you've been trying to run your race and make it to the finish line on the strength of religion alone, you're never going to make it. Because as Paul said in the book of Romans, the law was powerless, religion was powerless to save. The key is not looking to religion. The key is to look to Jesus, the eternal son, the author and finisher of our faith. Because when you look to Jesus, you find grace. And this is what grace does when you receive it. It throws off everything that's hindering you. It kicks the sin out of your life that's been entangling your feet. It gives you perseverance and endurance to keep on running the race until you see him with your eyes in heaven one day. It empowers you to be the person God has called you to be. You never get there through religion. You never get there trying to white-knuckle life and just, if I could just do better. No, no. You need to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ and He shows you the full extent of His love and the full extent of His love is one word. It is grace. It is grace for you that changes your life and transforms your future. Paul said it this way in Titus 2.11. He said, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Watch this. It teaches us What teaches us? Grace does. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled, upright, godly life in this present age. The only way to live the life that God has purposed for you is to live in His grace. And the only way to know His grace is to know His Son, Jesus Christ. God's whole goal for us, for all of humanity was that we would get out of this trap of religion and start living in a rhythm of grace. It changes everything. Like a good father, Jesus comes to us in our most shameful and regrettable moments, not with more condemnation and judgment, not by heaping on us more shame, but he meets us with his amazing grace, and his grace empowers us to get up from that place of shame. And live a different life. It's what happened with the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. When people were ready to kill her. They were ready to stone her. They were just ready to heap more shame upon her. And Jesus stopped them. And first he pointed out that they weren't perfect either. Isn't that great? Those Pharisees, they're the worst. (laughs) But then he looked at her. And he didn't say, you know what? It doesn't really matter. You're good. Like, what you did doesn't matter. It's fine. They're making a bigger deal out of it than what it is. Don't worry about it. Now, Jesus looked at her, and he said, where are your accusers? Where are the stone throwers? And then he said, now go and sin no more. And when he told her that, I just believe that he didn't tell her, now go and try harder. Go and work harder, lady. Quit screwing up. When he told her that, he spoke healing into a broken heart. And that word of healing released grace in her to live a better life. And that's what Jesus does for every single one of us. He exposes us to something so much better than shame and it's called grace. Come on, stand with me all across the room. I want the band to come up and begin to play softly. It's an amazing thing to understand that God is not standing in condemnation over you. He's not standing in judgment ready to strike you down. He is standing in grace for you. He's not standing over you, he's standing for you. The Bible says that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. It talks about how there's a city that we're going to one day in heaven and it says that the chief maker and architect is God and it talks about the foundations that have been built And that's what grace is for your life. It's like a new foundation for your life. And 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 some of you, you've 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 just been struggling to get your feet under you, you've been struggling to stay in in this race of life, and and you've just felt so attacked and so burdened and so weary and so tired. I'm talking to somebody today. You've just been so tired, and your heart has been so burdened and broken. And there have been days when you didn't think you could even get out of bed because of the weight that you've been carrying. And this is what I believe God wants you to know today, that in Christ Jesus, right now, in this moment, He wants to take that weight off of you, and He wants to replace it with His grace and His love and His forgiveness Listen to me, some of you have been carrying sin and shame from your childhood. You've been carrying things that were heaped upon you by parents who took their eyes off the ball and forgot the example they were supposed to be for you. Some of you have been carrying weight and oppression from others. And what God wants you to hear Him say today is, I never asked you to carry any of that stuff. I didn't ask you to take on that weight. I didn't ask you to carry those burdens. And what I'm inviting you to do right now is put all of that down. Step out of that life and step into my grace and everything is going to change from here. You've been looking at these things as isolated instances and I've got to deal with this and I've got to deal with this and I've got to deal with this. And God is saying, let let me deal with all of that. You just focus on coming to me. And I believe in this moment, this is where God has landed us today. I think he just wants to invite you to come to him in relationship with Him. He wants to invite you into His grace. He wants to invite you into His love. He wants to invite you to begin following Him because He set an example that you can follow, a life worth imitating. And with every head bowed and every eye closed in this room, please, nobody looking around, just between you and God, just a private moment right now, just between you and Him, If you know in your heart today that you've been doing it your own way and you've been trying to muster your own strength to deal with life and all the things that life has to offer and all the pain it brings and all the hardship you've been carrying and you want to come to Jesus today, you want to make him your Lord and Savior. You're going to say yes to Jesus. If that's you, then right where you are, I I want you to lift up your hand right where you are. I just want to pray for you today. I'm going to say yes to Jesus. I want to come into relationship with him. I want him to be my Lord and Savior. I want to lay down the heavy burdens. I want to lay down the shame. I want to lay down fear today. I want to lay down doubt. I want to come to Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. You can put your hands down. The Bible tells us what we have to do in order to be saved, and it's very simple. It just says, if you will confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God, you will be saved. He will come into your heart. He will forgive your sin. And it's not just the sins you've committed. It's the sin, the weight, the pain, the shame that you've been carrying from your past. He will forgive your sin. He will redeem your life. He'll make you a new creation in Christ Jesus. And what I want to ask everybody in this room to do, if you would, just repeat this prayer after me. And if you're saying it for the first time, if you're making Jesus the Lord of your life, then I just want you to say it with faith in your heart. And say it out of your mouth. God is going to save you today. Repeat after me. Say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I messed up. Forgive me. Heal me. Take away my shame. Give me joy again. Give me a life worth living. I acknowledge you are the son of God. That you died for my sins. That you rose again on the third day. And today, I'm dedicating my life to you. Be my Lord and Savior. Come into my heart and change my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, let's rejoice in the Lord today. He's good. He's good. We praise you, Lord. Come on, let's worship with the band. This is where my healing finds its start, and here is where I find my peace, where my soul.